Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, folks, here we go. Welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America, as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So now we step back into the ring. We step back into time. We get wall-to-wall and treetop tall with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, Ron, how's everything going? Oh, it's going great, Dave. Uh, had a nice Christmas. Uh, uh, nice little break, uh, but gosh, man, kind of kind of miss doing these stud casts, man. Kinda. So I'm really looking forward to this one. I think we're going to have a great one today. Uh, should have a lot of different type of information in this one. It seems like a long two weeks since we've been on, but hey, I tell you what, let's start today by welcoming everybody back after Christmas and wishing everyone a happy new year in 2023. So your holidays were pretty good, Stud? Oh, man, they were great, actually, Dave, you know, and I got to spend some time with my son and my grandson and uh, watched him play ball. Uh, Got to see a little bit of that. and So, you know, I'm just a... I just had a really nice time, uh, and uh, like I said, uh, man, I'm, I'm uh, you know, and, and I like to, uh, you know, echo what you just said, man. I hope all the listeners had a great holiday as well, and uh, the, the end of the year, obviously, and uh, and we're all eager as, uh, you know, eager as, I hope you're as eager as I am, and, uh, and the fans out there to get back into this, both these southeastern territories 44 years ago, and uh, we're going to be Breaking into a whole new year, man, 1979 in this one. Listen, so folks, if you know, you know, and you know that's a comfortable time, 1979, when we were we were digging these wrestling shows on TV and going to the matches in person. All right, so the title for this studcast, number 281, is New Year's Day, 1979, two shows. That's the title. So I hope everybody had an opportunity to hear our last studcast, number 280, episode 280. And if you didn't, I hope you take the time for it because it's definitely the perfect setup, Ron, for the new year. You talked a lot about the difficulties you were going to encounter in 1979 on the last studcast. Yeah, you know, uh, it was truly a very important one, Dave. Uh, if fans didn't listen to that one, I think, like you say, it really sets them up for what's to happen uh, going forward, man, in 1979. And uh, we were able to take a, a look at the future in the last episode. And and uh, it was 1979's the most critical year by far in my wrestling career. Uh, people are keeping up with it and following the studcast. Uh, this is going to be a really, really difficult year. We're going to continue to cover both the territories in the in this coming year of Studcast, is just like we've been doing. But we're going to be adding something to every episode, something new that's going to take fans basically behind the kayfabe curtain, man, where they have never been before. Uh, uh, each upcoming episode is going to contain facts and challenges that only I alone knew of in 1979, and some of them that. Even I wasn't aware of until they happened to me. Wow. So your studcast, I mean, to me, they've always been different and special. Real wrestling history has been in every one. But this year in 1979, it's going to take fans on a unique ride like never before through a, 
a, literally a wrestling war in southeastern Knoxville and the near collapse of southeastern Gulf Coast. So where do we start the ride? How do we get into this thing? First stud cast. Here we are. The first stud cast of 2023 stud. Well, man, we're going to ride in the 1979, uh, beginning with the first night of the year, man. Uh, January 1st, we're going to have cards in two territories that we're going to be talking about. Uh, we're going to begin in Knoxville with that card. The TV promoted it. The results of the card and the attendance in the Coliseum, uh, kind of like we normally do. And then we're going to ride south after that into Montgomery, Alabama's beautiful downtown Civic Center, man, for the event there. Uh, we couldn't run there on Christmas night uh, because the normal night was a Monday, but they decided that we they would let us run on, uh, on New Year's Day. So we'll be there on that night. Uh, we're going to talk about the TV promotes that card, the results of the card, the attendance. We'll talk about the attendance in all three of the major cities in Gulf Coast uh, during that week. And, uh, and uh, you know, we're going to take our first episode Look back at uh, each episode in that new weekly studs, Studcast segment. I'm calling it the Doomsday 1979. And uh, this first, uh, the first one we're going to cover uh, has a great, I got a great title for it. Uh, you know, what I didn't know about Bob Roop. And uh, so then given <laughs> enough time, we're, we're going to do our first learning tree question of 2023. So it sounds like a loaded format for this show, Ron. This studcast is definitely going to be covering a lot of ground. So I can't wait to hear the Bob Roop story, especially in light of all the stuff that is to come. All right. So let's get going on this one. So who was on the Knoxville Coliseum New Year's night card Monday, January 1st, 1979? Well, this one, man, was a great triple main event card. Uh, it opened up with Butch Malone who uh, years earlier was one half of the Southeastern Tag Champions. He was partners with Norvell Austin, and he was managed by General Homer Odell. Uh, Malone is back in town, and he was taking on the legendary Ron Wright in the very first match of the night. Uh, and that's the very first match in 1979 for Southeastern. Uh, Dennis Hall wrestled against Jim Dalton on that card. Charlie Cook took on the mighty Yankee. And in the first of three main events, I was facing the great Malenko. Uh, this time it was in a Russian death match. I beat him in the Russian cage match, and uh, now it's going to be in a Russian death match. Then uh, that match was followed by Kevin Sullivan and Ken Lucas. They were the new Southeastern Tag Champions. They had just beat Dennis Condry and Phil Erickson two weeks earlier to win the titles. And uh, and they sent those boys packing. It was a loser leave, man. So, uh they're going to be defending their belts in the Boston Street Fight match against Tora Tanaka and the Destroyer. Uh, those two guys managed by Ron Wright. And then the third main event was for the Southeastern Championship belt. And it had been around, that belt had been around three different wastes in the last five weeks. I won it from the great Malenko on Thanksgiving night. He won it back from me five days later. Uh, then he lost it to Garvin 10 days after that. So Garvin had not defended the belt since he won it 24 days earlier. So on the Christmas night card, one week before this card, the 14-man elimination match uh, ended with Ronnie Garvin against Bob Orton Jr. And in that match, Garvin had beat the last guy that he beat before Bob Orton Jr. to win the elimination match was Bob Root. So when Root was eliminated, went back to the dressing room, and while Garvin and uh, Orton are going at it, Root comes back to the ring, and he threw something in Garvin's eyes. And uh, <laughs> Ronnie was blinded. And, uh, you know, and uh, you know he, <laughs> wow, uh, he hadn't wrestled uh, since that had happened at this point. So <laughs> he was going to be defending his belt uh, in one of the most unusual matches in wrestling history, man. First time I'd ever seen this happen or done before. Oh, it sounds like it. And that sounds like a great t card, too. I'm, I'm kind of interested in that unusual match. Can't wait to hear about that. So let's start with the TV show that set all this up. Saturday, December 30th, just two days before this New Year's Day event. So Les opened the show by himself, which was most unusual, and he hardly ever did that. And he quickly explained uh, what fans were 
seeing on the big set uh, screen behind him, there was a big still shot. And the still shot was of Bob Roop throwing something into Ronnie Garvin's face. Big still shot of it. And, uh, and he was about to beat uh, Ronnie Garvin, was about to beat Bob Borden Jr. for the $10,000 prize in the 14-man elimination match. That was taking place a week earlier on Christmas night, a little bit more, well, about five days actually before the TV time. So at this point, you know, uh, I led Ronnie Garvin to the set uh, for this particular show. His eyes were covered by some dark sunglasses. I, I set him down uh, by Les, and I sat down beside him, and uh, Les welcomed us. And, uh, and then he ran the video that was the still shot was behind him. He had the producer put that video in action. And it showed Ronnie Garvin uh, rolling around the ring, uh, screaming in pain, covering his eyes uh, because uh, uh, Rupert hit him with that whatever it was. Uh, Orton stomped him in the face. He, Ronnie, he kicked him in the gut. He jerked him up and, and he put him in his inverted pile driver and dropped him on his head. So Orton got the pin. Uh, he accepted the $10,000 cash prize and he left the ring with Bob Roop and uh Garvin was still laying there, blind and helpless at that point. Wow. And, uh, wow. So then Ronnie had opportunity to explain his situation of uh, what he had been told by doctors, that he had been to see some doctors and that uh, he, his, he had a real problem with his eyes and, and he might never see, see very good again. You know, they told him that it was really, they didn't know how bad it was going to be. So then Les told him how sorry Southeastern officials were about what had happened. Obviously, they had no control over Roop and, Gar- Roop and Orton. And, uh, and then uh, Garvin asked if uh, uh, that, that he would be willing to, uh, Les asked Garvin if he would be willing to listen to a live challenge from Bob Orton Jr., who was in another studio. Never opened a program like that where, you know, we watched a little bit of the, uh, the video and then, uh, and then we threw it away to Studio B, where we all, all did secondary interviews from. And uh, so uh, Garvin said, you know, because of what had happened with this guy five days ago, he hadn't been able to see, and and listening was about all he could do anymore. Gosh, which wasn't a really funny comment, but it was pretty odd. You know, he said, <laughs> sure, I don't mind listening. I can't see. So suddenly appeared on the screen. And... Uh, and the Bob Roop uh, was with him. They were in Studio B, and they started laughing and making fun of Garvin's blindness. <laughs> Roop said the only thing he threw in Garvin's face was water because Bob Orton Jr. was making him sweat so bad he felt sorry for him. <laughs> and then Orton jumped in saying that he still had the ten grand, and he'd be happy to put up his $10,000 that he won on Christmas night if Garvin would put up his southeastern belt on the line. Well, the studio crowd, and now they were aware of Garvin's eyes and the situation. Well, they, they didn't like that much. Obviously, they erupted in booze, man. Like, what are you, what are you a nut? So then uh, Garvin, uh, you know, he asked the studio crowd to stop. He said, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, everybody just be quiet. And then he, then he told Orton, you know, he said, you know, I think I'd be a fool to wrestle blind uh, against any opponent that could see, you know. But uh, he said, I'll tell you what I do, though. I will put up my title against you, Bob Orton, uh, if you'll put up the $10,000. And, uh, and, and if you would agree that both of us are going to be blindfolded for the championship match. Well, boy, the studio erupted on that one, man. It's like <laughs> two wrestlers blindfolded. Uh, like I said, that's 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 an extremely unusual match. Wow, no doubt. All right, very unusual. So, so I've never heard of anything like that. So, what kind of mask would they wear, and what did Orton say? Well, a mask was going to be like any other mask, except basically there would be no holes where the eyes are. <laughs> right? <laughs> so you put that hood on and you right. got it, you can breathe. You got yeah. a hole for your mouth and a hole for your nose. Wow. You can't see. Yeah. So, you know, that was the only difference in the ordinary mask. So Orton said, you know, he loved the idea and he immediately accepted the challenge. 
And then he told everybody, he said, you know, my father, Bob Borden Sr., he said, he trained me to wrestle blindfolded from an early age. <laughs> wow. And, and, you know, uh, that's a true, true deal. I mean, you actually learn how to wrestle better blindfolded or not using your eyes than when you use your eyes. By feel so, and instinct. Yeah. That's it. Once you get your hands on somebody, then yeah. you can, you know where to go from there. Yeah. You wow. Know? So, uh, you know, then he quickly added uh, that uh, he would he would do this deal with uh, with uh, Garvin. He would give he put us ten thousand dollars up. Uh, he would wear the blindfold, but only if his tag partner, Bob Root, could be at ringside with him to make sure that he wasn't going to get robbed, uh, you know, of his ten thousand dollars while he was blindfolded. So I'd said nothing. Up to this point, uh, Ronnie did all the talking. You know, I just basically kind of walked him out there. He couldn't see. And I told Ronnie that I'd be more than happy to be in his corner to make sure he wasn't going to get cheated. So the studio exploded uh, in, in the first ever Southeastern and maybe, as far as I know, maybe the first ever anywhere blindfolded championship match was booked. So Bob Orton Jr. went straight to the ring for the first match. He left an opponent laying. Uh, he used that devastating inverted pile driver on him, and uh, nobody got up from that one. Uh, Tore Tanaka and his partner, the Destroyer, who many thought was Bob Root wearing a mask. And <laughs> I'm sure it was. Uh, they wrestled, and they won the second match of the show. And Tanaka uh, used a headbutt, and the Destroyer used a shoulder breaker, which is even more proof that uh, it was Bob Root. And they would be wrestling for the belts two days later on January 1st, 1979 against Kevin Sullivan and Ken Lucas. Uh, Southeastern champions Kevin Sullivan and Ken Lucas were on the personality profile. They watched their huge win that they'd had from two weeks earlier where they won the tag belts with the victory over Ron Wright's fantastic team of Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson. Wow, they had a great team and uh, had a tremendous record in Southeastern. And uh, it was a loser-leave Southeastern match, so it was the last time those two guys ever wrestled there as a team. They went straight to the ring uh, uh, to get another win, uh, Lucas and Sullivan, and uh, making it clear, man, that they were ready for Tanaka and the Destroyer and uh, Kevin had asked for a Boston street fight. Uh, and so that's what they were going to get in this particular match. It was going to have Boston street fight rules. Hmm. And then the great Malenko closed out the show with a special Russian death match on TV. <laughs> we never had one of those before, but it gave people an idea of what the Russian death match was all about. During that match, he wrestled against Ted Allen, who was a young guy at this point, And he bloodied him up pretty big time in the process. Wow. Uh, those Russian matches, those death rule matches and chain matches, well, they were really, really tough matches, uh, and there was always somebody bleeding in them. Wow, that's a pretty good TV show. I, can, I can't see anybody, uh, well, taking their time going to the refrigerator. So what happens two days later on the January 1st, 1979 New Year's Night card that we just talked about? Well, Ron Wright, he, he sneaked by. Uh, Butch Malone, uh, you know, Ron Wright uh, was pretty <laughs> prolific at, at, at winning these matches, even though he is twice the age, practically, of Butch Malone. He still got the job done. Uh, Dennis Hall beat uh, Jim Dalton. Uh, Charlie Cook got the best of the mighty Yankee. Charlie Cook was becoming a pretty big star in Knoxville at that point. I beat the great Malenko for the second week in a row in another one of his unique Russian rules matches. And this time I beat him in a Russian death match. Kevin Sullivan and Ken Lucas successfully defended their belts in the Boston Street Fight match against uh, Tor Tanaka and the Destroyer. And then the Southeastern Championship match stole the show, Dave. Wow. I was in Garvin's corner. Bob Roop was in Orton <laughs> Jr.'s corner. Mm -hmm. And this match had the $10,000 prize from the elimination match of Christmas night, won by Bob Orton Jr. at stake against Garvin's belt. And the only rule was any man who removed his mask automatically lost the match. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you couldn't take it, <laughs> you couldn't go any longer mm -hmm. without seeing your opponent and you pulled your mask off, you automatically lost. Wow. So the match itself was extremely interesting. 
Wow, the fans really, really loved it. Uh, lots of time was spent by both of the blindfolded matches wrestlers uh, trying to find each other in the ring. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, the bell rings and you know you knew where the guy was, but uh, you know it took a little bit of time for them to find each other. And when contact, every time they made contact, the action wow was fast and furious. You know, until they were kind of separated, one kicked the other one off, and they and then they had to find each other again. So finally, during one of these flurries of action, the referee got between them, and uh, and he was accidentally hit. They were throwing some punches. He tried to stop it, and uh, and I think it was uh, uh, I mean uh, Orton that hit the referee by accident. Referee went down hard, man. Uh, he was about knocked out. And uh, so Roop standing out there, and he's I'm sure waiting on something like this to happen. Referee's down. He don't know what's going on. So Roop just jumped right straight in the wing, went straight for Garvin. And I saw him coming, and I cut him off, and I knocked him out onto the concrete floor. And me and Roop, we fought back to the dressing room. And uh, when he got back to the dressing room, he disappeared. He went in the dressing room. I went back to the ring. Then the real surprise for everybody was revealed, man. Uh, this is really, this really uh, set the evening off, man. Orton was uh, still swinging wildly, man. They, they had knocked uh, the referee down, but I don't know that he didn't know that he, he hadn't hit Garvin. Hmm. And then, uh, so, so Orton is swinging wildly, and uh, Garvin just kind of backed away, and he, Removed his own blindfold. He took his <laughs> blindfold off, right? Mm-hmm. The building went silent. And I'm like, what the hell? I mean, you know, he's going to lose, right? And he can't see anyway. And then he slowly looked around at the Coliseum stands, and he threw his hands in the air as if he'd already won, even though the referee was still down. Mm-hmm. Then he walked over to the corner, he climbed up on the ropes, and he sat down on the top rope. He watched Orton swinging wildly. And then, <laughs> and then the people figured out that Ronnie Garvin's eyes were fine. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second, Ron. I thought he couldn't see. So you guys set Orton and Roop up to get the $10,000? There you go. <laughs> so, you know, Garvin says, well, they think I'm blind, Ron. Uh, you know, I get the 10000 back. I'll just tell them I want to have a blindfold match, you know. <laughs> so so that's the whole deal. So, yeah, it was kind of the beauty of the entire angle, man. So uh, when everybody figured it out, the crowd, when they figured out, you know, the building exploded, man. Like Ronnie sitting up there on the on the top rope, and uh, he'd re- regained his sight and uh, from what Roop had uh, done on Christmas night and whatever he threw in his eyes, and uh, and he just me and him talked about it, and we didn't let anybody know it. So it was now time for him to get his revenge, and boy, he got it, man. He he got the ten thousand back. Uh, Roop and Orton uh, thought they stole from him. Garvin climbed down off the rope he was sitting on. <laughs> Coliseum was going crazy at this point, and he started dancing around the blindfolded Orton, and he's hitting him with his shots. <laughs> bam, bam! My Orton can't see him. Wow, wow! Orton's going all directions. He's taking bump after bump, and uh, finally, when Orton went down <laughs> big time, Garvin hit him with a really good punch. Uh, then uh, Garvin drug him out to the center of the ring, and he jumped off the top rope in his throat. <laughs> <laughs> and there was another explosion from the crowd. Then he pulled the referee. Now, the referee, is, he was really went down. He took a good shot, and he pulled him over to where Orton was after he jumped off on him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he put his own mask back on again mm-hmm. so that when the referee counts him out, and then he covered Orton. And so when the referee counted Orton out, he raised Garvin's hand. He gave him the $10,000 in cash, and he gave him his southeastern belt. Well, the fans loved that. That is a fun and a fantastic angle to begin the year of 1979. That is so cool. All right, so what was the attendance, and where do we ride next? Well, the attendance was just over 5,000. Uh, it was pretty close to a sellout, uh, and obviously that's another great way to begin the year. And uh, So before we get down, we're, we're going to head down to the southeastern Gulf Coast, but but I want to get into this, uh, the first weekly Doomsday 1979 segment that I mentioned earlier. 
that over the course of next year, it's going to cover just about everything that went wrong for me in 1979 concerning not just Knoxville's war that's upcoming, but also what was happening in the southeastern Gulf Coast, which wasn't so good either. So this episode, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I'm going to call what I didn't know about Bob Roop. So let's start with some of Bob Roop's wrestling history that I did know. Uh, He was a great amateur, a Greco-Roman wrestler in college. He was good enough to represent the United States in the 1968 Olympic wrestling team. So he was a great amateur. Uh, The Florida Territory with Eddie Graham uh, as its largest shareholder. uh, And uh, Eddie was a huge fan of real wrestling and real talent. Uh, They'd already begun to focus on great amateurs. Uh, who had recently graduated from college and and might have an interest in becoming professional wrestlers. Wasn't a whole lot of them back at this point. This was about 1970 or so, uh, 68. And, uh, you know, that wasn't commonplace. Eddie had already found him one of those amateur wrestlers, though, man, uh, Jack Briscoe, who had gone on to become, had been the national champion and two-time All-American wrestler at Oklahoma State. So by the 1960s, Jacks had already become one of the most popular wrestlers in Florida, and he was going to be, in 1973, the NWA world champion. So Bob Roop was recruited uh, off of uh, and, uh, and brought to Florida in 1969 to train to be a pro. And uh, he was brought there based upon the almost instant success of Jack Briscoe. Man, wow, Jack Briscoe became such a huge star down there. And Roop heard about it. And then when he came there, he saw what it was all about. So then I came to Florida a year later, 1970. I came from the Georgia Territory. And I had been wrestling professionally for about six months when I went down to Florida. Uh, Bob Roop and I became friends. Uh, We worked out together in the snake pit uh, in that nasty (laughs) place where we're appropriately named the Snake Pit Boy uh, in the building where the wrestling office was, where the TV studio was, and and in the same place that was the worst nightmare of Mark's, man, that thought they were tough. wasn't a good place for anybody to show up thinking they could be a wrestler. So one of the greatest wrestlers, uh, Japanese wrestlers in the world, Hiro Matsuda, was also a regular in the Snake Pit, and occasionally Jack Briscoe would show up down there too. So... Roop stayed in the Florida Territory from 1969 to 1977, about twice as long as I stayed in Florida. I left in 1974 Mm -hmm. uh, to open up Southeastern Wrestling in Knoxville. Uh, Bob Roop and I rarely talked after 1974, but we still remained friends. And uh, when he left Florida in 1977, he went across the country to wrestle and book for a promoter named Roy Shires. Uh, Roy Shires was a was a very outspoken and controversial owner of the NWA San Francisco territory. So during Roop's time in San Francisco, he for some reason decided to try and steal Roy Shires' territory from him. He's a booker, and he had the opportunity. And so after experiencing some success there as a booker, he used that influence to try and convince some of Shires' local promoters. Buddies of Roy that had promoted certain towns, and they got a little small uh, percentage of what the what the crowds were. Uh, Roop uh, t- convinced these guys that uh, they should go with him, and that he would cut them in for a bigger piece of these cities, and uh, and he would become the the leader and the owner of uh, the San Francisco territory. Man, so so when Shires found out about Roop's plot basically to steal his company, obviously, Bob Roop was sent packing. Wow. That was about 1977, uh, maybe 78. So the sad part about all this is I was never aware of any of it. I mean, Alfred Roop, the Southeastern booking job, which is booking is one of the most trusted and important positions in any wrestling company, offered him the job in September of 1978, just months after he had arrived there. And uh, 
I don't guess anybody would believe I would have done that if I'd had any idea he had previously conspired to steal an NWA's owner's territory right before coming to my territory. <laughs> so without knowing it, I'd thrown basically a rotten apple into the barrel with some great wrestlers, man. <laughs> and, uh, and I never th- knew things were not looking good for the future. Wow. What a way to start a new Studcast weekly segment. <laughs> Naming Bob Roop as your Knoxville Booker, you had already made your first mistake in 1978, months before 1979 even started. I can already tell this Doomsday 1979 segment each week is going to be pretty fascinating. And I'll tell you what, Stud, this is a good place for a break. Let's do that. We'll be back with our first Southeastern Gulf Coast card of 1979. We're heading south. That's coming up next on this Studcast. Okay, so on the break, you had said you had something you wanted to talk about. What's going on, Stud? Yeah, I mean, I've got a great event, man, uh, and it's turned out to be even better than I anticipated it would, Dave. Uh, I'm going to do uh, for Southeastern Rewind, a YouTube channel, a first time ever, Uh, Ask the Stud question and answer show. Uh, I've been advertising it on social media for people to leave their questions. And I got to tell you, Dave, it's it's the best questions I have ever seen from wrestling fans. It's pretty amazing. Uh, That show is going to actually air on uh, Southeastern Rewind's YouTube channel on Saturday, May the, I mean, January the 21st. Uh, which is uh, just a couple of weeks away. And uh, it's, it's wow, I, I can't wait. I mean, the, pe- the questions are just so outstanding. I know fans are going to really, really enjoy this one. But we're going to do it once a month uh, for, for maybe uh, from now on. Uh, and we'll do it the third Saturday, and every month we'll have a new Ask the Stud show. Uh, and it's obviously a question and answer show. I'll give people the opportunity after we finish this first one on January the 21st to ask some new questions, and uh, and we'll do it once a month. And I'm really, really looking forward to it. I love to do these question and answer shows. And uh, once I got the questions, I got to look at the questions, I was like, wow, this is going to be so good. So I just want to make fans aware of it. That's going to be Saturday, January 21st. Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel. It is an exclusive YouTube product. It will not be seen on any other places. Uh, and uh, I just uh, I just want fans uh, to join me. I think they're going to have a real good time. I, I know that fans really like these question and answer deals. And this one, I think, is going to be a classic. Well, there you go, Stud. That's another awesome way to super serve so many listeners that you have not just in the continental USA, but around the world as well. I think that's really cool. All right. So let's get back into this stud cast number 281. So what was happening in Southeastern Gulf coast, the very first week of 1979. Well, toward the end of this stud cast, uh, I want to take a little bit of time to discuss another most unusual event that happened. Uh, the end of the first week in 1979, on Saturday, January 6, 1979, uh, where we'd been asked by the owners of the Florida Territory, this is a very unusual situation. We'd been asked by the owners of the Florida Territory to run a partnership event with us in Tallahassee in a building that they owned there. Uh, but before we get to that, let's begin with the New Year's Day card. Uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, which is on its regular night of Monday, mm-hmm. on Monday night, uh, January 1st, 1979. Uh, you, you've never mentioned running Tallahassee, a major city in the Florida Territory, Ron, so I can't wait to hear about that. So who was in the very first car? January 1st, 1979, Montgomery, Alabama, the capital of Alabama, in the heart of the Southeastern Gulf Coast Territory. Well, that card was the same as the one in Mobile. Uh, We're going to do that card in uh, four different cities during the course of that week. It's going to be the same card will be in Montgomery and Mobile on January 3rd. It will be there on on Dothan on uh, Friday night, January 5th. And then on Saturday night, January 6th, that same card that we're going to be announcing here was going to be in Tallahassee, Florida. 
So uh, Terry Gibbs opened up the night against Ken Dillinger, uh, the wrestling pro, squared off for one of the best newcomers in the sport. Gosh, this kid was amazing, Buzz Sawyer. Uh, in a special challenge match, Norvell Austin was going to meet Billy Spears. In a 10-round boxing match, Tony Charles was going to be facing Dr. D, David Schultz. In a Southeastern Tag Championship match, Robert Fuller and Jimmy Colan, the champions, were going to be defending against Don Carson and the Assassin, managed by Billy Spears. In a Southeastern Championship match, Bob Armstrong was facing the Mongolian Stomper, managed by Gorgeous George Jr. And then the last match was going to be a main event, 16-man, two-ring, triple chance, battle royal, with the two winners getting a total of $10,000. Uh, everyone on the card was in the battle royal, including the two managers, Billy Spears and Gorgeous George Jr. Okay, so that's a tremendous card, including the two-ring battle royal. It had seven matches. That seemed like that's more than usual. But what was in the TV show that promoted this incredible card to build this whole thing up? Well, the TV show was actually recorded in the month of December on uh, Saturday, December 30, just as the same Saturday that it was being recorded in Knoxville. Uh, it was two days before the Montgomery card on January 1st, uh, 1979, and it was going to be in four different cities that week, just as I mentioned a minute ago. Uh, and it opened with Charlie running down the TV card, and then he invited out the tag champions, Robert Fuller, Jimmy Golden. And uh, Rob said they got a great reception from the studio audience. Uh, I wasn't there. I'm living in Knoxville at this point. Uh, they watched the tag match, uh, Rob and Jimmy did, uh, from Mobile, Alabama, three days earlier. And the hero of this video that they watched was Norvell Austin, who almost single-handedly uh, saved their championship belts for him. So it was the same match that Rob described to me on the last studcast. Uh, that we did, where Norvell came to the ring and he took care of their business. But Rob said after the match, he and Jimmy walked back to the dressing room with their belts while the fans carried Norvell on their shoulders, which is very unusual. But, uh, wow, those Mobile fans were absolutely wild. And uh, when they loved you, they loved you. And when they hated you, you need to watch your back. <laughs> it was a bad deal. So Rob said that uh, Norvell had gotten over much better than they anticipated. Wow, they thought he would get over, but uh, not this near what it was. And uh, this t TV that we're about to talk about, just uh, it continued that process of getting Norvell over. So the first TV match was the former tag champions and, and the future opponents of Rob and Jimmy, uh, who, who were still at the set. It was Don Carson and the Assassin, managed by Billy Spears. In the first TV match, boy, and they got the crowd on their feet. Uh, they made him as mad as possible, <laughs> which they did a real good job of, especially Spears and Carson. And, uh, you know, and then uh, before beating two good opponents, they didn't wrestle just two, two uh, jabrones that are there to do a job for somebody. They wrestled uh, Frankie Lane and Terry Gibbs which was, wow, two great young guys, man. And uh, Carson uh, won the match and ended up loading his glove and hitting Lane with it. And the two tag teams, uh, you know, shared the first interview, Rob and Jimmy and uh, Carson Carson, and, uh, and his partner, the assassin, uh, and Billy Spears, now obviously doing the talking. So, uh, you know, uh, the wrestling pro, a uh, huge fan favorite joined Charlie at the set for the second match. Mm. And the pro's next opponent was in the ring in that second for that second match. Uh, it was Buzz Sawyer. And wow, this was his TV debut. And uh, Buzz was a kid. The kid was just unbelievable. He wanted to become a star. He was, he was, he was absolutely phenomenal. And, uh, so, you know, he was, he made his debut against a much larger guy. He wasn't real big, uh, Buzz Sawyer, but his name Buzz fit him perfectly. He was like a buzz saw in the ring. And he proved to everybody that his rugged reputation was well deserved. Uh, the wrestling pro, and you're really familiar with him, Leon Baxter. Yeah. Uh, he yeah. 
During the course of this match, he sat there with Charlie and, and commentated about it. And you could tell Rob said that he couldn't hide his appreciation for what many believe was the best up-and-coming new talent in the sport at this point. Wow. Uh, you know, Leon was like, wow, this kid's unreal. Yeah. And uh, Buzz left, uh, you know, a much, his much bigger opponent laying. And, and then he challenged not just the TV audience to come in the ring, but he looked over there, Charlie and, <laughs> and Leon, and he challenged the pro. Come on down, get you some, man. Mm, <laughs> you know? uh-huh. so, uh, he, he was a he was a go getter, Buzz Sawyer. Hmm. Well, then Pro and Sawyer, man, they split the second interview. Uh, uh, Buzz Sawyer claimed uh, that he he said some. Rob said he called himself a young gunslinger. He says <laughs> I'm going to put another notch in my belt when I beat this wrestling pro, the famous. <laughs> the, the, the 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 former famous wrestling pro when I beat him, you know, right. so, so you know, he really dug it into poor Leon, man. So then the personality profile, it was with the man of the hour, man, Norvell Austin. And he and Charlie watched the video from Mobile uh, on a huge crowd, almost 7,000 people, where he literally – took apart Billy Spears in a singles match, man. And and the match that was uh, supposed to get his $2,500 bet between him and Spears back, if he won the match, he's supposed to get his money back, his $2,500. Just supposed to be him and against Spears. And uh, while well, he had Spears uh, bleeding like crazy in the match and screaming like crazy, and, and uh, enough so that Carson and the assassin – they left the dressing room. They went to the ring to save him. They had to. <laughs> Austin was uh, tearing him to pieces. And then uh, the three of them got on Austin, and then uh, Carson loaded his glove and popped him, and uh, they had him bleeding bad. Uh, then they stole his 2500 for the second time, and they left him laying in the ring. So Charlie was uh, on top of his game, you know, mm-hmm. in this deal. Uh, <laughs> And uh, he, he started playing off the enthusiasm of the studio audience. During the course of this video, they really got into Norvell. And uh, so Charlie just decided to go back and show the same video they had opened the show with, where Rob and Jimmy showed this same match. So it was the match where Norvell got his revenge, basically, because after this match where he and Spears had uh, where he had just kicked Spears rear end big time and then ended up getting bloodied by the three of them. Then Norvell came back and Rob and Jimmy's championship match because uh, he wanted to get even and he tore up all three of those wrestlers, man. The guys that had stolen his money in the match right before it. And, uh, and then the fans uh, had liked it the first time they watched it at the beginning of the show. But, wow, they really loved it, man, after seeing it the second time. Now they knew why Norvell came back and got involved in the match. So he got a very rare standing ovation, man, from a studio audience um, at the end of the profile. That didn't happen very often. We did a lot of profiles live, but very seldom did you see a guy get a standing ovation at the end of it. Uh, Tony Charles was the next guy in the ring for this TV show, David Schultz who was back from his Christmas vacation, who'd been gone for about 10 days. He went to the set with Charlie. And he and uh, Charles uh, were set to meet the next week in, uh, you know, on the big battle royal card, but they first were going to be in a 10-round boxing match. So when this match, Tony was in it, uh, you know, Tony wasn't wearing boxing gloves, but, boy, it didn't stop him from showing he had some boxing skills. Before he beat his opponent with one of those big throws that he was famous for, he <laughs> turned this guy upside down, man, and uh, brought the entire studio to its feet, man, with some of his boxing skills. Uh, poor Schultz is sitting there watching it with Charlie, and he goes, hey, he goes, I never knew this guy could box, <laughs> you know. So, but if you ever saw Tony Charles' broken, crooked, broken nose, you knew he had to get that as a boxer. That's where that nose came from. So, Schultz and Charles, uh, they had the third interview. They really got down, man. They'd been feuding with each other for a while at this point. And, uh, wow, they, they, they let it all out on that third interview. Then the show ended up with everyone on their feet, man. 
is Bob Armstrong came in the studio, brought his Southeastern Championship belt. Bob was so over. Wow. And his opponent for the upcoming week was the Mongolian Stomper uh, with his manager, Gorgeous George Jr. And Stomper and Gorgeous George uh, went to the set with Charlie, made comments during the course of the match. But uh, Bob didn't give him long to make the comments, but he did what he'd always done, man. Since his first day in Southeastern Gulf Coast, he made the fans happy, and he left his opponent legged. And uh, Gorgeous George Jr. hardly had time to say anything before the champion had finished his opponent off with his sleeper hole. So GG did, however, say for the first time he guaranteed a victory for his Mongolian stomper, hmm. and he would be the new Southeastern champion. Uh, and uh, he, he couldn't wait to see the stomper get his hands on Bob Armstrong. Hmm. Last interview was with Bob Armstrong at the set with Charlie and Gigi and the stomper in another studio. And uh, then the show ended up with something special uh, because it was the first two-ring battle royal in the history of Southeastern Gulf Coast, we'd been there for almost a year. Uh, we'd been there for 10 months, but we'd never had a two-ring battle roar. And so Charlie uh, showed about three minutes of a two-ring triple chance battle roar from Knoxville, Tennessee in 1977 at the end of this show. It had Bob Armstrong in it. It had the Mongolian Stomper. It had Robert. It had Jimmy Golden. It had Tony Charles. It had Don Carson. It had David Schultz, and it had myself in it. It was a great way to go off the air with everybody seeing what was coming out of those two ring battle royals. Great way to end the show. Oh, no doubt. An extremely entertaining TV right there, stud. So what happened in the arenas of Alabama and Florida, starting in Montgomery, Monday, January 1st, 1979? Well, Terry Gibbs beat Ken Dillinger. Uh, Buzz Sawyer kept that winning streak alive. He got him a win, just like he said, notched in that, another notch in his belt uh, for beat, beating the wrestling pro. Norvell Austin literally took Billy Spears to the woodshed. <laughs> That's a Rob explained to stay that's the way he described it. <laughs> it was it was short and nasty. Uh, David Schultz <laughs> won the boxing match against Tony Charles, but uh, you know he had to, he didn't beat Tony square fair and square. Uh, in fact, uh, he had uh, he had put his uh, glove into the water. Pail, you know, both corners had a water pail, and uh, during the before the last round, he dropped his right hand into the water pail and he let it soak up all the water, and he knocked Charles out with it. So Schultz, uh, well, he, he figured it a way to get the get the victories when he needed them. <laughs> Don Carson and the Assassin, they regained their Southeastern tag belts. They beat Robert and Jimmy. And the Mongolian Stopper beat Bob Armstrong to regain it, the Southeastern Championship. Then uh, all the two-ring battle royals uh, ended in some kind of controversy, and none of them, none had the same four wrestlers in the in the final ring for the tag match. The way that it works is you had the two winners of ring one wrestled the two winners of ring two in a tag match, and whoever won that won the deal. Well, they'd never had the same two guys in any of those four cities that we had. They all end up with different four different guys, and the outcome was never never clear in any of them So as to who was going to get the money. So that obviously made it possible to have a tag match as a main event coming back the next week between the last four guys in the ring in all those four cities. And the winner of those matches were going to get the money. All right, that's pretty ingenious, Stud. Big money matches come back again the next week from every one of those Battle Royal cards. All right, so what about the attendance in Montgomery, Mobile, and Dothan? Well, let's see. Uh, Montgomery set a new record, uh, 4,100 people. Mobile uh, beat Knoxville, had 5,600 people. And Dothan had 4,800. So... There's 14,500 in just those three cities alone. That's a pretty good start for 1979. Uh, for real. So I've been waiting for this. I think it's time to tell us about that Tallahassee partnership event 
with the Florida Territory. So why and how did that happen? What's up with that? Well, one of the reasons it happened was because we had kind of ignited, man, the old Gulf Coast Territory in 1978. It was pretty dead when we started there. And, wow, we had a tremendous first 10 months. Uh, and uh, that fact was big news, man, in the NWA and, and all around the world. Uh, the Florida Territory had been on, on fire itself basically since 1974 when Dusty Rhodes turned babyface down there. And uh, – and they experienced in all that great success, they had built their own wrestling building in Tallahassee in 1974. They called the building the Tallahassee Sports Arena. Uh, five years later, now we're talking five years later after 74, in 19, by 1979, Florida's business had dropped off some. Uh, but the southeastern Gulf Coast business had just exploded uh, the year before. So... I had, a, I had a really good personal relationship with Eddie Graham, who was the primary owner of the Florida Territory. Uh, he and I, and, and especially him and my dad, had always been very close. Uh, my father actually owned stock in the, in the Florida Territory. Uh, Tallahassee was the most western market in the Florida Territory. It was actually only about 80 miles from the cities of Dothan, Alabama, and Panama City, Florida. And uh, our TV show could be seen in that market, in the Tallahassee market. So Eddie had contacted me, uh, you know, about taking taking over the operation of Tallahassee uh, in their building, and uh, and he offered me a deal that we would equally be equally split the profit for every show from the ticket sales and the concessions, because when you own the building, you obviously have the concession. And his thought was, uh, our signal from the Dothan, WTVY TV station, was strong enough to cover Tallahassee, and he would help to promote us by running promos for the events off of his local Tallahassee TV station that the Florida show was on. Okay, so is that, I mean, is that, the normal way NWA promoters work together, and how did the event do? Well, it, it was definitely not the way most territories work together. You know, boundaries of territories were usually recognized, and, and most owners were very particular about them, man. You know, um, it, Tallahassee had been that Florida's town for, for many, many years. Uh, but this particular idea that uh, that Eddie had it made sense basically for three reasons they needed the help uh, we needed another major market another big city for us rather than running these small towns and uh, both of us could benefit from it so I was hesitant uh, the only thing I was hesitant about was uh, how would about working because of the TV signal. Uh, the TV signal from WTVY only covered about half of Tallahassee's market. Uh, so you're only getting fans on the west side of town uh, rather than the eastern side and on, uh, on toward uh, Jacksonville, you know. So that, that and uh, that, uh, you know, since it only covered half the market and to the fans in that area, uh, I knew that once we went in there, they were going to lose their familiar wrestlers. You know, and I felt like we might be perceived as competition to the Florida TV show and to the Florida wrestlers and um, maybe ultimately responsible for stopping the normal Florida wrestlers from coming to Tallahassee. So, you know, the fans, we might alienate the fans. So oddly enough, Dave, uh, this same scenario was going to take place in June of this year of 1979 in southeastern Knoxville when the war starts because there's going to be a second TV station and another new company that's also going to have its own TV show. So it's crazy, man, uh, wow. how these things work. Uh, wow. So to answer your second question, the event didn't do very well, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, wow. We, had, we were going to try again. Mm -hmm. In November of 1981, we ran a second show, the one week later, but then we didn't come back again until uh, we ran an event there in November of 1980. But uh, with both TV stations uh, still remaining uh, 
were running separate shows there, it still didn't work. So I finally convinced Eddie and my dad that we needed, if we we're going to run Tallahassee and for it to be successful, that we needed to have our show on both television stations in that market. Mm. Uh, we actually went to the trouble of making a second TV show specifically for Pensacola and for Tallahassee uh, because we were doing so good during that period of time. So on January 1st, 1982, almost exactly three years to the day after we tried this first partnership event in Tallahassee, we went back and we sold out the sports arena. Uh, we were extremely successful there until the about the end of July of, of 1982, uh, when our business at that point had grown so big and we had spread so far north, we had gone down to Birmingham and almost back to Tennessee. Uh, that uh, our business, we didn't need it, you know. <laughs> so basically, uh, in about July of 1982, we dropped running Tallahassee uh, because it was a 400-mile round trip. And uh, we were drawing just as big a crowds in cities that were less than 100 miles from Pensacola than we were drawing in Tallahassee. So it didn't make sense anymore to go to Tallahassee. Wow. All right, that's kind of a, that's amazing facts, really, about the wrestling business, Stud. So, how about the attendance for the first Tallahassee Partnership event? How'd you do? Well, man, like I said, it wasn't really good. It was just over two thousand fans, and and uh, you know, it's in the same week that we just talked about earlier, where Montgomery was four thousand, uh, Mobile was fifty six, <laughs> uh, Dothan was forty eight. You know, it was less than half. Uh, as the fans that we drew in our own territory yep, yep, and in yep. our own territory, we didn't have to split the profits. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it, it didn't make sense, but, uh, it, it, it was, we were going to try it again and it did. We did make it work eventually. That's why I love these studcasts. I don't know of any wrestling podcast where you can get this type of history. Hey, listen, I'm sorry, but I don't think we're going to have time for the learning tree question this week, but I do think the whole show has been a learning tree event. No doubt about that. All right, Facebook folks, listen up. Go to Ron Fuller Welch, the Tennessee stud. Like and follow to participate in the dueling cards pick and TV pick as well. Look for his stud cast number 281. That's this one. Number 281 post on all three sites on Facebook and make your choices. On Twitter, find him on Twitter, Ron Fuller Welch. And if you have not already done so, follow in there, too. That's another way to participate. Look for the studcast, this one, number 281, post to make your choices on Twitter. His YouTube channel, as we've been talking about through this episode, is Southeastern Rewind. Southeastern Rewind on YouTube. It's famous. Don't forget to join him for the first special YouTube-only Ask the Stud question and answer show. It's coming Saturday January 21st, 2023. That is thanks to your response and a ton of questions. And it is really going to be a good show. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com is where you find everything that is the Tennessee stud. His classic old school TV shows are fantastic. There are now 95 Southeastern, 23 Continental, and 12 Gulf Coast TV shows available, all in the order in which they were recorded. Hundreds more are coming. More than 50 stud stories are there. Six stars of the sport, four superstars of the past, and now 16 episodes of the audiobook Brutus, plus hundreds of hours of other fantastic old school wrestling. All of this. Only $4.99 per month or $39.99 per year, plus the free one-week trial is still available. It is the best deal in wrestling. All right, so where do we ride next week, Stud? Well, we're going to dive into the Knoxville card. Uh, we're going to Sunday afternoons, which are traditional there in the winter. Uh, we're going to be wrestling on uh, Sunday afternoon, uh, January 7th, 1979, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
Uh, this card uh, that we'll be talking about next week is a much bigger card than what we had in this episode. In fact, we're going to turn away thousands of fans next week uh, with the card that we're going to have in Knoxville. We'll discuss the TV that promotes that card. We'll talk about the results of the card and the attendance. And uh, then we're going to have another uh, Doomsday, 1975, 1979. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> In 1979, Doomsday, we're going to look at the past, and we're going to go back into that very difficult year again. The next episode is going to be called Memphis Creates a Problem, and uh, because we're going to begin lose wrestlers and a booker in 1979, right at the early part of the year. Uh, Southeastern Gulf Coast is going to be the next stop on the on the next studcast, and we'll talk about its card. For the major markets, the TV promoted the card, results of the card, the attendances in all three markets, and hopefully we have going to have time next week, uh, Dave, for another learning tree question. So cool. again, you know, I'd like to wish everyone a happy new year and uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, please take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.